Future.com. <laughs> oh, yeah. We did it again. Bob Dylan, step aside. The boss, they step aside. <laughs> I mean, uh, James Taylor, brother, at least let us share the stage <laughs> with you. We're getting there. Uh-huh. We've managed to do this like 35 times and we're still alive. So, <laughs> so. So far, yeah, so but tonight I think I think we we have also um, this first time special edition of our jingle with a guitar because we have a very special guest, John. Oh, that's for sure. Hey, hey, Matt. You know, before we get to this, you know, uh, you know, you're a surfer, right? I know you're a surfer. We always talk about you being a surfer, man. Uh, uh, so, so you, you may know this word. You know that you know stuff about the seas, and uh, it's a relatively new one to me. You ready for it? The word is gyre. Or is it gyre? I don't know. Gyre. Yeah, gyre? I, I I was thinking about it gyre. as well. Yeah. If it's gyre or gyre, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know something about the word. Great, great. That makes one of us. <laughs> that makes that, that makes yes. one of us. But 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 hey, Matt. You know, tonight uh, we have several gyres. Several meanings more than three or four. We have five gyres or gyres tonight. We're going to find out soon. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, as as I said, I've heard about them and I read a bit uh, a bit about them. Um, but uh, tonight we have the chance to learn something about the yeah. five gyres. Yeah, and uh, directly from the initiator or from the origins of the five gyres. Yeah, in fact, the co-founder of the five gyres <laughs> tonight, uh, and his name's Marcus Marcus Erickson. Uh, so, Marcus, welcome, welcome to Plastic Climate Future. Hi, thank, thanks for having me. And yes, it's it's called the Gyres, and we're the uh, the Five Gyres Institute, now about a dozen years old, and we've had a chance to sail, you know, through each one to really understand, you know, what's the global impact of plastics on on oceans, one of many different environmental spaces yeah. where plastic might accumulate. We're on the we're focused on the ocean surface. All right. And where where tuning where where are you tuning in from? Uh, from sunny California. So if you're a surfer, I mean, this is uh, oh, one yeah. of many surf havens <laughs> in the world. You know, uh, you mentioned Matt. You know, your your background in surfing and polymer chemistry. Now, I was wondering if you ever heard of a uh, SR PET, self reinforced PET. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I've heard of some folks making surfboards. You you can take you can take PET, take one batch. And and raise the melting point and make a fiber. Mm. Another batch, lower the melting point and infuse it and make you know what what feels like fiberglass. Great mm. for surfboards. Hundred yeah. percent recyclable. It's all the same polymers. You know what I've heard of, which is which is even which is also cool because it's uh, self reinforced PLA, which means that you could even make, uh, do it biodegradable. If you want, <laughs> really. So I, I know where what what where we're gonna meet next time and uh, what we're gonna discuss <laughs> next time on on yes. the water. I would say on the water. Which one is on the, the beach. better solution? Here, yeah. here in LA or, or in LA or Ventura counties are yeah. really good spots. <laughs> well, so, yeah. So, so the idea of you know self reinforced PLA or PET. I love those examples of really designing for the complete life cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like designing for give it to your consumer and then they deal with it. 
-hmm. It's designing for what's the entire life cycle? What's the end life of plastics plastic going to be? Mm -hmm. If we do that in a responsible way that we get it back and, and there's no harm in the back end. I love, I love stories. What, what, do, what do you think? I mean, how do you see it uh, today, Marcus? I mean, do you see uh, uh, the state of play as far as uh, this focus, uh, uh, if you will, by, by industries, by society, uh, on, on the end of life uh, considerations uh, when, during the design uh, of, 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 a, of a product? Well, you know, I, I think it, it, it's taken us, you know, half a century or more to get here from the advent of plastics. You know, when it first became commercially viable post-World War II, the whole world was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has long shelf life. It does less breakage, easier yeah. to ship it and store it. It's colorful. It can be made into all kinds of stuff. So really a remarkable material. But then, you know, half a century later, we're realizing you know, uh-oh, we don't make the right products or think of the entire life cycle, mm -hmm. there are some negative externalities. It ends up where you don't want it to be. Mm -hmm. And that's been, you know, for the last almost 20 years, my research has been sailing around the world uh, mm -hmm. each of the five subtropical gyres, North mm -hmm. Pacific, South Pacific, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, Indian Ocean, but then outside that to the Bay of Bengal, to Antarctica, to the Arctic, to the Great Lakes where he found little plastic microbeads and all these adventures discovering, you know, where plastic, if it's not designed, if you don't think in the very beginning, how are you going to design it for, for circularity, then there's a chance it's going to get lost to the environment and the impacts are, are not good. Mm -hmm. So I think as we bring light to those impacts, I'm actually more inspired, more optimistic now than I was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. I see, you know, so many companies and organizations and mm. governmental agencies from the mm. public and private sector that they really care. They don't want to yeah. see the harm. They're thinking, how can we unravel whatever systems cause that harm and still have the benefits of plastic? without the legacy of harm to, to living systems, to human health, mm -hmm. to our, uh, our social environments as well, and economic uh, stability. Wow. So that's it. that, again, brings me optimism. I, I agree with you as far as, uh, I, I'm at the same state as far as uh, optimism versus pessimism about about the state of play uh, uh, and, and the momentum of, of uh, that that's 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 in play now where we're going uh and and I didn't always see it like this I mean I go back 10 years ago 20 years ago 25 years ago uh didn't see it uh, hardly at all and so so I, I agree with you over to you Matt yeah but uh, I love it because now we're already deeply in the topic of circularity circular mm -hmm. design that's uh that's what makes me shiver a bit um <laughs> <laughs> but before before we dive deeper um I think we are we're also always interested in plastic climate future about the the person behind uh be on the other side of our microphone so um now you you're talking about sailing you, you you've been researching but what's your background marcus yeah. what how, how did you come to that yeah are you a chemist um i guess i i can give you the the, the quick background you know I, I grew up in louisiana i grew up at the mouth of the mississippi river I could walk, you know, a few miles and jump in the river and go swim. Yeah. And we catch snakes. And I remember when I was 15 years old, having a, 
an alligator as a pet, 11 snakes and 96 turtles <laughs> in a pond. I was the, I was the neighborhood zoo. I've got this oh. love of wildlife. Um, I joined the military. I, I found myself, you know, in, in Kuwait and Iraq. And I remember making a promise to myself that if I survived the war, I would raft the Mississippi River, a childhood dream. I mean, many of my, of my friends, we knew about Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, the writings of Mark Twain. It was like this, this fantasy. And I made good in that promise in 2003. Mm-hmm. And I really, I fell in love with the river again and the basic goodness of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I also saw was an endless trail of plastic waste. Mm-hmm. And that really bugged me. As I, I began to love nature again, even more deeply, it was it was offensive that I could always look to my left and right, and there's a, a little bag floating by, or a bottle cap, or a fork, or a knife. Banks of the river with styrofoam piled up on the high tide line, and I just felt I had a choice. Like all of us have a choice. You see a problem in the world, are you going to step up or step back? Are you going to say, "Oh, that's a problem. Somebody should do something," or are you going to say, "What can I do?" And when I finished that rafting voyage, I put that raft in the back of a trailer. I drove from New Orleans back to California, right to the front step, the front door of Captain Charles Moore, the man that had discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Mm. And I said, look, I just did this trip. I know who you are. I want to see this garbage patch. What is this ocean plastics issue? I want to know because I saw where it's coming from. Mm. I want to see where it's going. And I began working with him while I was completing my PhD in uh, in, in science education and evolutionary psychology. Wow, really a deep dive into really understanding our relationship to nature. And uh, I I remember I was with Charles Moore in 2005 that summer. I began working with him and his organization, and I met this amazing woman, Anna Cummins. And she and I had known each other. We went on the trip together. We've been dating for a little while. We're in the middle of the North Pacific gyre. Mm-hmm. I knew she was the one. And I saw some fishing line floating by. So I, I pulled it in, piece of fishing netting. I made a ring and I caught her sleeping in the sails. There was not much wind. And I crawled up to her and I proposed. And she said, yes, luckiest man in the world. And then, but then, then I said, which you probably shouldn't say with a proposal. I said, but... I want to do something else. And that was to build a mega plastic raft. So she was all in. So we built this raft. And then another (laughs) sailor, Joel Haskell, the three of us, built a raft out of 15,000 plastic bottles. And Charlie Moore, he dragged us 60 miles offshore and let us go. We had no motor, no support boat. We figured this this funky raft, 15,000 bottles, 24 sailboat masts and an airplane all tied all tied together. And that began this ocean odyssey. My first big expedition at sea, uh, actually after uh, with Charles Moore, big soul expedition. And uh, I thought it might take us four weeks. It took a whopping 13 weeks to hobble into Waikiki. I, I lost 20 pounds, like 12 kilos in weight. And... Uh, but the most important photograph in that expedition was a picture of a fish <laughs> called, a, called a rainbow runner. And I, I was hungry. I opened the fish and I'm, I'm halfway between Hawaii and in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. as far from land as, as I'd ever been the planet. 
Mm-hmm. And and the stomach, it just the stomach burst open as I as I touched with the knife, and 17 particles of plastic popped out. And I had that same gut feeling I had in the Mississippi River that this is wrong. You know, I, I love the ocean, I love the nature, I understand the the relationship to nature. Mm-hmm. We need that healthy the, the life force of nature keeps us alive. We can't be doing this to it. So I had this greater impetus. And then Anne and I again began the Five Gyres Institute. Mm-hmm. We said there are other gyres. This issue is huge. It's mm-hmm. global. And there's not much data. So our basic first question was, how much plastic is out there in the world's oceans? Mm-hmm. Where is it? And what's the impact on the planet? Mm-hmm. These are big questions. Mm-hmm. And we had to start. So we stepped up to the problem. Our first expedition, North Atlantic, was the beginning of, now it's been 20 expeditions. We published 25, 30 papers, and we've engaged um, with corporations, with uh, international leaders, uh, city councils across cities in the United States, and some in Europe. It's been a wild ride. And now we're one of many advisors to the UN on the global treaty. Mm-hmm. And that path, it's been up and down, but I'm, I, at this point, as I mentioned, full of optimism as I see stakeholders stepping up to the challenge to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And you call it an institute because it's uh, kind of like a science center or scientific uh, academic institute, or are you like, how do you fund yourself? Because I can imagine like all these expeditions and so on, they're probably super costly, right? So do you get support from the government or do you all collect the funding yourself or? We've had some state grants, I mean, uh, some um, um, national grants from, from the state department, uh, but mostly it comes from private donors, private foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a business model of paying for expeditions by selling seats. So for example, when we started the North Atlantic voyage, mm-hmm. um, I had just learned of a, a new company that was running ocean expeditions with an amazing boat that was designed for, for long sailing expeditions. Mm-hmm. So I chartered with them and I sold the seats. There were 14 seats, one for me, one for Anna, one for Joel, and the rest we sold, pay for the voyage. And that's our first publication was on, uh, that added to our bigger publication of the global impact of plastics. So that's our business model. We do a lot of fundraising. We're now about 10 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still a relatively small organization, but we're really focused mm-hmm. on the plastics issue. We do academic work, a lot of focus on science. We sort of tout ourselves as being what we call the honest brokers. We come to the table and we say, look, here's the science. Here's what we know. Mm-hmm. We're not doing science for the money. We're not doing science to support an industry or some NGO perspective. We're really focused on providing um, objective knowledge, science-based, and how does that inform public policy and corporate decision-making for public good? Mm. And that, in a nutshell, has been how we, we do our work. This is really, uh, I mean, just connecting so much with with, with me and, and with Matt for sure here. I mean, uh, the the uh, connection to uh, uh, our, our thinking on plastic climate future, our three pillars, and, and you're hitting this uh, point of science-based and uh, being the key. And uh, we, we sometimes talk about science is the best tool for, obviously, for discernment, and science is the best 
tool to uh, to basically just displace greenwashing, to resolve, uh, yeah, uh, to increase uh, uh, good faith engagement between parties. Uh, I, I mean, science is 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 the tool, uh, and so that that really really resonates with with me and Matt. And and looking at your website, you know, you you talk about uh, in your in your mission statement or somewhere you mentioned. Uh, science, advocacy, and education. You touched on uh, advocacy just a, a second ago, but can you can you talk us uh, through a few more of these? Uh, what do you mean by advocacy and education, and what you're doing? Because uh, it's it's really uh, really interesting to hear you speak on this. Uh, sure, I'm happy to share. You know our our education work. I'll hit that really quickly. That's basically engaging the public. For example, in the next room, my wife and co-founder is talking to a school in New York. Mm -hmm. We do this all, all day long. Yesterday, I spoke to the Epoch Times, and yesterday morning was another school I spoke with. So we're constantly, you know, putting aside a half hour to an hour, you know, every other day or so, talking to different groups. Mm -hmm. I love it. I mean, I have a background as an educator. Um, but it's also it's getting the word out and giving people, people often want to hear from scientists, you know, they, they want to hear from the source of knowledge and, and not a secondary source with the primary literature. And that's what we can convey. And then lots of videos we create. We have educational materials. We have a program called Trash Blitz where the public can download an app and monitor <laughs> trash in the community. We help create reports. We just did one for Austin, Texas, a citywide report. So those are sort of educational engagement opportunities. But the advocacy stuff... You, know, you mentioned greenwashing. I see it across the board, and that often comes from either a lack of knowledge mm -hmm. or taking the knowledge and skewing it to some other objective. Mm -hmm. uh, so greenwashing go both ways, mm -hmm. either ignorance or or malevolence. You know, but so I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you one. Yeah, I'll, I'll share with you one example. So when we when we decide to go inland, you know, start hitting lakes and rivers and bays and estuaries. We, we went to the Great Lakes. This is going back to 2013, you know, a decade ago now. When the Great Lakes, I was with a colleague, Sam Mason, and she and I began surveying the, the lake surface and found these little plastic, little microbeads. Mm -hmm. Now, 10 years ago, nobody knew what microbeads were. Mm -hmm. um, we had a hunch and we were able to match, imagine a little tiny sphere of plastic the size of a, a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. We were finding millions of them on the lake surface mm -hmm. and being in the lake, we were in national boundaries, unlike the ocean being international, we could point to a company because they weren't poorly degraded. Unlike ocean plastics, you can't point to a company. It's so badly degraded. Can't point to a country, but in the great lakes, you can, you can have some action. So we thought what's a science-based sort of initiative we create. So our campaign was simply first published a paper. So in 2013, we published a paper on microbeads in the, in the uh, Laurentian Great Lakes. And uh, then we began this campaign. We matched those beads to products and store shelves and went to the companies first. We thought as a strategy, let the company making the product, let them maybe announce a change if they want to change so that they can take the credit for making the change themselves. I'd rather do that then try to call them out and be negative from, from, from the start. Mm -hmm. So we actually went to a few big companies that make the products that contain microbeads. And a couple said, said, wow, you really find these in the environment? We're going to switch. And a couple did switch. Mm 
and a couple did not. And this is where policy is important. So the advocacy for policy, and I've spoken with some CEOs at big companies, and they say policy can level the playing field, and we'll we'll play along if everyone plays by the same rules. If not, why would we take the cut, the hit, while someone else is enjoying sticking to the status quo? Mm -hmm. So policy, what we did with that campaign, we made a bunch of videos. We had a published research paper, first of all, and lots of op-eds, other reports. About 50 other nonprofits joined us. Mm -hmm. We had the uh, a law school in New Orleans, Tulane Law School. They actually produced their quarterly journal, Sample Federal Legislation. Mm -hmm. Then we had two senators, U.S. senators, took that legislation and all of our materials and brought it to then-President Obama, and he signed the 2015 Microbead Free Waters Act. We went from a published science paper to really smart policy in about two years. And that's a, a great example of, you know, where advocacy works. Levels the playing field. No one gets to put microbeads in the products. The alternatives already exist. You know, you can use cocoa beans or the or the husks from walnut shells or even sand, other materials as an abrasive mm -hmm. and not have to use plastic. Mm -hmm. So it worked. That's kind of advocacy that I like. When it's science-based, it levels the playing field. There's an alternative that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned you, you've been advising the UN now also on the plastic treaty. What what did you do there? Can you tell us more? It's interesting. Oh, sure, sure. It, it, it's amazing. So, you know, a, a couple of years ago was when uh, UNEA, uh, they agreed, uh, I forget how many countries signed on to agree to formulate a treaty. And that began the negotiations. And part of that process um, we were invited as, I think, one of, I think, 75 different organizations and scientists to contribute to an understanding of the science and, and then give that to all the uh, negotiating parties. Mm -hmm. So that was our, our level of, of input. Since then, there's been a lot of work sort of trying to influence the negotiations with, with newer science. Mm -hmm. As more, like, human health studies come up, for example... Um, I can't show the details, but we have a, a new update to the global estimate of ocean plastics. Uh, you just got accepted, accepted publication. It should come out in a couple of weeks. And we're going to write op-eds and gear that data toward the UN negotiators mm -hmm. to say, look, here's the newest, the exponential increase in microplastics in the oceans that they need to know. Mm -hmm. So from the initial you know, advising uh, of the state of affairs, the state of the science. Now it's bringing new science as we get it very quickly, getting it in front of the, the faces of the negotiators so they can have timely uh, uh, you know, answers to their questions about science. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, just uh, um, thinking here a little bit uh, um, and, and looking at, at your website, some, some of the images, uh, do you uh, also... Uh, and or often or occasionally uh, organize or partner with uh, uh, entities uh, for like uh, ocean cleanup or, uh, you know, uh, ocean bound plastic cleanups uh, or, or how, how, uh, how is it that five, five guys is, 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 is involved in, in, in such type of activities if, if, if you are. 
Yeah, so so collaboration is key, and I've I've actually spoken with the, those two entities and others. You know, Four Oceans is another. Mm-hmm. There are you know if you look across the whole gamut of organizations that responded to the ocean plastics issue, and, and I should say it's been a fascinating ride mm-hmm. to go from twenty years ago when the issue was first becoming mainstream mm-hmm. to yeah. watching multiple stakeholders, watching industry respond, watching the public public outrage drive policymakers yeah, yeah. to ask for funding and then fund yeah. the science and it's it's amazing sort of um uh, interactions to watch um so and a lot of organizations came to the table a lot were coming out saying oh there's trash in the ocean let's go clean it up mm-hmm. that's kind of the first response the public kind of has mm-hmm. and when you and when you take these when media they are they're one key stakeholder when they communicate the issue and they exaggerate, they sensationalize some of the science and produce these myths of islands, floating islands. Mm-hmm. The public, of course, is going to say, go get it, go clean it up. Mm-hmm. And the reality is just the opposite. It's it's not an island of trash. We call it a smog. Like the way you have smog over cities, particulate by the trillions of particles hovering over a city, an industrialized area. Mm-hmm. Same in the oceans. You get this, this smog of microplastics hovering over the subtropical gyres. So cleanup is, is unlikely. The economic uh, viability of that is very, very difficult. The cost benefit is very low. In fact, I've spoke to some of the folks that do cleanup at sea. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, I remember once asking uh, one of the founders if they would take a fraction of the funds they've raised and put it toward a kind of um, a bounty on plastics that fishermen, because fishermen are already out there. Mm-hmm. If a fisherman sees a big net go by, give him like one euro per kilo or a dollar per pound to recover mm-hmm. that net. I've had fishing, I've had people that, that own fishing fleets say, my deckhands would turn the boat around instantly if you if they could go get, you know, a, a certain amount of money, even just a quarter per pound for, mm-hmm. for fishing gear. They would get it. It's yeah. beer money. That's what he told yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are alternatives to to do that, but unfortunately, the person that ran this organization that is cleaning up, he said no. I was really surprised. Mm-hmm. So I should back up a bit and say that you know I'm I'm really focused on the upstream side of things because mm-hmm. the pollution issues they begin with decisions way way upstream. Yeah, and how you design products and packaging, the kind of polymers you might use, and then what kind of systems you have for managing those materials. Uh, post-consumer. Those decisions precede all the cleanup. Not that cleanup is is not a worthwhile thing to do. Of course, you want to grab debris off of coastlines. Mm -hmm. You want to grab it off of hiking trails and roadsides before it becomes microplastics, before it has impacts. Mm -hmm. But we got to clean up things in the beginning. And I like to offer, there is some precedent for how we solve big global issues. Mm -hmm. If you think of how we address the ozone layer, the whole the ozone yeah, layer. Yeah, right. We didn't try to add ozone to the, we actually, we ended up banning CFCs globally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you see, think of how we, we stopped, you know, tar washing up on beaches worldwide. When I was a kid in, in the Gulf Coast, you brought acetone to the beach to clean your feet because you'd step in tar. And that was mainly caused by a practice of oil tankers discharging their cargo, then rinsing out their hulls offshore of residue. Mm-hmm. 
So MARPOL, international maritime law, stopped that practice, and you saw that, and you saw the tar balls begin to decrease. Mm-hmm. Same as smog over cities, mm-hmm. that particulate, yeah. that's largely from uh, um, exhaust from cars and smokestacks from coal burning power plants. Mm-hmm. So we then create scrubbers, catalytic converters. So all of those, those three big global problems were solved by an upstream mitigation yeah, with yeah. some really smart policy. Mm-hmm. So with plastics, it's not going to be, let's pick up every microplastic product in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Let's, stop it. let's stop it at the source. That's, mm-hmm. that's what the whole global treaty is all about. It's not about cleanup really at all. So uh, while I know those organizations exist, Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of bank for the buck for us to work with them closely. I'd much rather work with the UN, with some bigger entities, work with other scientists, work with sort of forward-thinking entrepreneurs and innovators mm-hmm. about smarter ways to use plastic and, and design products and packaging. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I think I get the biggest bank for our buck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Strategically, yeah. Yeah, now here we are here back at the at the design question. But what what I heard just now is like it's not only also about the design, but also about creating the right framework so that these design um, yeah approaches are also being implemented. So if there there is not the right policy pressure, for example, and it has to be global, right? Um, it's it's difficult to to you know have local incentives trying to fight such a such a global problem. Um, what do you think? Like because you, you mentioned like or it's all on your website as well that collaboration is key as well. Like where where does it start? Does it start with the education um, of in in schools, or does should it start with the education of the industry, or should it be more? like uh yeah pressure from from the regulatory uh part uh which which goes like punishment for example for for the industry if if there's uh yeah if if uh the the regulations are not met or is it just more complex than that well it's interesting you you mentioned the word punishment (laughs) because i think i think that's important i wouldn't call it punishment i would call it um, enforcement of a policy. Because yeah. mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. If you look in back in the 1970s and 80s, there were some big policies that were put in place to uh, to deal with um, ocean pollution, for example. There was MARPOL, uh, UNCLOS, uh, the London Convention, mm-hmm. and these had teeth. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if you violated those treaties, there were there was an, an, some enforcement. I, I don't know if it was a monetary thing or or, or whatever, yeah. or you lost a share. Who knows? But what we what, what we saw after that, like this century, you've seen things like the Honolulu strategy, things that were voluntary, yeah. and voluntary commitments almost always fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and there's a lot of evidence to say the voluntary things just don't work. So you got to have enforcement. I wouldn't say punishment. <laughs> you call it that, but it's got to have teeth. So I believe in policies. Um, like we're here with the UN strategy, um, the UN Global Treaty. Some countries wanting voluntary measures. We'll make voluntary commitments. I'm like, no, no, because they almost always get broken. If you're going to commit to something, well, commit and stick to it and make sure we all stick to the same rules. So, so, but back to your question about, you know, how do we engage? 
Um, it's, at, it's at the policy level, but also with a lot of companies. I love working with companies that are, are really pragmatic, that say, okay, we've been doing it this way for a long time. We see that, you know, it's making our, 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 our company look bad. We have these ESG goals and we want to look better. We want to do right. And, you know, lots of people I talk to, and we, and we know some of the common people, um, they, they have kids, they have families. They, they're concerned about the environment and human health. They don't want to cause harm. So when we talk about, okay, how do we make, how do we make a better kind of packaging? What are the new polymers we might use? Do the biodegradable polymers, pH, PLAs and PHAs, do they have the product performance you want without the legacy of persistence and harm in the environment? Mm-hmm. And those kind of conversations I really, I really enjoy. Um, we, 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 we're just wrapping up now a big study of PHA, a biodegradable polymer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fascinating. And we took 22 different products made from PHA, some PLA, PBAT, PHB, all these really new materials and some mm-hmm. controls, some polyethylene some paper materials. We put them all in six environments. I mean, we put these products into the Florida Everglades, California desert, California marine environment, uh, Florida on land, in Maine of the Northeast, in aquatic environment near an oyster bed, in a forest, totally different environments over 18 months. And we monitored them at six different time periods. And the results are fascinating. And actually, I'll, I'll give you um, uh, uh, some insight. It's not published yet, but thin film, I think a thin film made from some of these, some of these materials like PHA mm-hmm. could be revolutionary. Mm-hmm. You know, I've actually, I have a picture that we took of a candy bar wrapper frozen in an iceberg in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. If that were made of PHA, it wouldn't be there. Wow. And PHA can give that candy bar long shelf life, but it wouldn't have that persistence. It degrades in all these environments. So I really love seeing how science can actually inform industry on mm-hmm. what are some of the new viable materials that are going to help them to reach their ESG goals, um, not have their brand visible. I mean, this candy bar wrapper, the name was very clear in the middle of the iceberg. You can see through the ice and see the name of the candy bar. Yeah. That made a, they don't want that kind of advertising. Mm-hmm. You can help them to make better choices and look better and do good while still having a viable business. Mm-hmm. That excites me. This is really so cool. I mean, PHA. I mean, uh, uh, if if you listen to our, our our podcast, Marcus, you'll you'll hear Brad Rogers from Donamere Scientific was on a, a, a week or so ago with Matt and I, and and there we learned the nine syllable word polyhydroxyalkanoate. <laughs> nine <laughs> syllables. I mean, think about that. I'm a guy from Arkansas. We get above three, and we think we're uppity. So I mean, that's that's quite a good thing, you know. Uh, but but but. Uh, um, I could go. I could really get into uh, uh, bio biodegradability of polymers. I could really nerd out on this. I was just yesterday uh, at, at a conference in Brussels, uh, where someone from the European Commission uh, was 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 talking about some some regulation that's that's uh, on deck, uh, and and uh, the subject of biopolymers was was on the table and, and biodegradability. And I don't claim to be an expert about this, but I'm 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 curious to learn more. And um, what one of the things that that struck me was was uh, this comment about uh, 
I fully get the science and I agree with you, like polyhydroxyalkanoates, PHA, candy bar wrapper, uh, wouldn't be there in, in the Arctic, Arctic as you described. Uh, uh, what 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 uh, what would be kind of a an echoing back, but maybe a little bit different from some of these people would be, yeah, but but we have to be careful that we don't end up promoting littering. Uh, and I, I thought, like, yes, of course. by that, and what they mean is like, well, it, it's kind of it's kind of strange because it's like, well, this innovation to actually develop something that you say is revolutionary, which I I think you're you're probably right. Uh, it, 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 you would think, you, you know, wow, I mean, uh, it's not about promoting littering, but that's how s- some people perceive it. And, but mm. I, I think that that these are kind of these things that that uh, that that those who are interested in finding solutions to problems. Like those who develop PHAs, for example, uh, need need to to be uh, cautious of. It. At least in some parts of the world, there's this attitude of of uh, you know um, your biodegradability is not is not necessarily what what we regard as a good thing for a reason that may surprise you. That that strikes me. I don't know if if yeah uh, uh, if 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 uh, if if you ever have a in in North America or other parts of the world that may not be a concern, but but certainly in Europe. Um, this is one of the uh, one of the, the attitudes coming from people that you know are having the pin on the piece of paper that writes the single use plastic directive and stuff. You know, yeah. But you know, it's interesting. I, I've I've had this conversation lots of times about that it might cause people to think mm-hmm. you can just throw that candy wrapper on the ground because it's yeah. made of PHA. And then I thought, you know, people have known for decades that newspapers biodegradable. Mm-hmm. But I don't see newspapers littering the roadsides and the beaches and, and anywhere. I don't think people want to litter just because they know it's right. biodegradable. I think you're right. People might throw an apple core in the bushes, but you know most people don't do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think if we label it as it's this new biodegradable material that's going to cause this sudden rush. People throwing. <laughs> okay, let's go out and litter. Over. We're free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I agree. With I don't you. think it's going to happen. But, you know. <laughs> I can nerd out on this stuff as well. Well, one thing I find interesting, you know, from our study of PHAs, mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to designers. How can you make because because some of the thicker items in PHA mm-hmm. did not degrade as fast as a thin film, and that's mm-hmm. kind of intuitive. Mm-hmm. But how can you design a thicker item so it might degrade quicker? Quicker a, a honeycomb design, maybe increase surface area, <laughs> or make it a rigid foam, like. What is some of the design? I'd love to talk to engineers about how can you take this material and 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 increase the applicability of it to our needs for products and packaging that have the potential to get lost to the environment. You know. So I really enjoy geeking out on some of the, the design of these things. Matt, you want to mention something about honeycomb? Uh, I mean, I, I'm just dying to mention this, but uh, also uh, it's in our podcasts. Uh, back, uh, it was in the summer we interviewed. Uh, the technical director, uh, technical manager for a company called Econ Core. Uh, and they're all about having a technology for taking thermoplastics and converting them to honeycomb structures for lightweighting purposes. And someone who used to work there actually had the idea, and this is where this person actually first heard of PHA, of, 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 of taking PHA and making a, 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 a pallet, a shipping pallet, uh, and, and then having it accidentally fall off the, the uh, uh in one of the seas and 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 but knowing that it would biodegrade it would degrade in seawater uh that happened to be me <laughs> uh uh we didn't do that but but uh, but <laughs> the point is 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 uh, uh you can look to our podcast and you'll see an interview with econ core so 
just another connection here, Marcus, with what uh, how how you get. I'll people, check it out. Yeah, how you get people that are you know looking to solve problems like like Matt's doing, and I'm I'm at least shining a light on them, you know, and uh, uh, it's 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 cool to see how these things come together. So Matt, please take over. I'm getting too excited. Yeah, I see. I see. We have like there's so much to talk about, and I I think uh, Marcus, you have so much experience, so we definitely need to invite you a second time. But just just looking at the time. Um, I have one last question. Like, what what do you think from from like now your personal perspective was the most impactful of your research studies or or papers that you published so far? Where where was like, where, where do you feel that you got big resonance or or you had you had big achieved a big impact with? In terms of science papers, um, the microbe one I mentioned and one on on plastics and camels. Um, I, I brought my, my equipment to do, you know, you know, sea surface surveys uh, to Dubai, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, and Oman. We were planning to just do our surveys you know, in the water. And I met a veterinarian in Dubai. He had been given, I think, $50 million by Sheikh Mohammed to build the best camel hospital in the, on the planet in, mm -hmm. in Dubai. And I went to his hospital, I met him, a remarkable human being. And he said, you want to see plastics? Come with me. And we went deep in the desert, like probably 100 kilometers way in the desert. And for me, it was very nostalgic, weirdly, because I've been fighting there, you know, 30 years earlier. Mm. And uh, we're in the desert and we're seeing these little piles of bones. These rolling sand dunes and acacia trees and piles of bones. We went to them and we began digging inside the rib cage. You can picture the rib tips sticking up out of the sand. We're digging inside this rib cage. And I pulled out a big mass of plastic bags, probably as big as a medium-sized suitcase. And I estimated okay. about 2,000 plastic bags all yeah. wadded together. I cut in half those plastic bags all the way through. And what Uli Werner told me, the veterinarian, he said, the camels, all they know in the desert it's either sand, rocks, or food. And they see plastic bags or plastic waste stuck on trees or in the, in the, in the desert. And they're either eating it because they think it's something nutritive or it might have food residue. They want the salt, whatever the, whatever the reason might be, they're consuming it. And he said he's had over 300 camels come to this hospital and die on the gurney. And they suffer in a horrible way. They're malnourished, dehydrated, cuts and lacerations, inside their esophagus and their stomach. They, their blood is toxic. Um, it's very septic in the, in the gut. Mm -hmm. And so we, were, we wrote this paper, got it published maybe three years ago. Mm -hmm. And a year and a half later, Dubai banned plastic bags. And, and, and the, the, the reverse option was, I mean, what they want to do is promote just re reusables. Mm -hmm. And that's an example where I thought our paper really informed a community and a, a decision was made based on science. So that might be to the two good papers. Wow. The one's been referenced the most was our global estimate that we published back in 2014. Mm -hmm. That we estimated 5.25 trillion particles weighing a quarter million tons floating on the ocean surface globally. Mm -hmm. And we just updated that. And I can tell you it's an order of magnitude greater today the number of microplastics. Mm -hmm. There's so much more pollution in the world today mm -hmm. on the ocean surface. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I was just saying to Matt, uh, Marcus, uh, actually, he said that was one last question. No, 
Uh, we still have one last question, which is the most important <laughs> question, man. I've been waiting for this all all night. I mean, you being from Louisiana, you being of a certain uh, age and generation, uh, then 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 this this is all this is all contributing to my curiosity. You know, uh, I come from Arkansas. You're from Louisiana. Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit earlier tonight when you were talking about 20 years and how basically my my observation is. Uh, you, you were certainly doing this type of work before it was cool, you know? Uh, and it reminded me that that country song by Barbara Mandrell, you were country when country wasn't cool. You know, you were doing this long before it became the, the thing, you know? Uh, uh, and I think that that's something that I just observed. It's just a factually true statement I'm making there. Um, and then I just want to get to the most important question, Marcus, and that is... Uh, you know, uh, my guess is you probably have some some interesting songs in your in your head and your experience. And, and and when we started this podcast in this website, Matt had the great idea of, hey, let's build a podcast playlist where we had we asked our guests about some songs they like. And Matt and I, we both love music. And we said, yeah, we'll do that. And so so that's what we want to do tonight. You know, Marcus uh, is, is ask you for a song or two that. You know that that you really connect with, and it could be something that you listen to when you're out on the seven seas. Uh, it could be <laughs> something that is whatever, something you whatever. But we we'd love to hear a couple of songs that 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 play in the head of Marcus on occasion. <laughs> well, I can tell you when my daughter went to school this morning, she was wearing one of her favorite sweatshirts, which uh -huh. says "Is Floyd Dark Side of the Moon." She's ten uh -huh. years old, and and we sing "Wish You Were Here" together. <laughs> Uh, okay. Oh yeah, I love that song because you know, when you're in the middle of the ocean, you miss you miss land sometimes. You miss people. Mm -hmm. So, wish you were here is perhaps the the top of my playlist. I tell you what, Matt, this 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 is uh has to keep be one of the ones that would move to the top of this playlist. This is a good one. <laughs> this is a good one. You know, in, yeah. in all our, our time uh, that we've been doing this, I mean, uh, for uh, over a year now. <laughs> we we collected I don't know, eighty songs or so something like that, uh, and and we won't tell you who, uh, we won't tell you what song, uh, but 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 we we've only we've only used our editorial discretion to say no we don't want to put that song on there. This is certainly one of the ones we want on there, but but, but we Wonderful. it's our secret. We're gonna go we're gonna go to the grave. No one to ever know who, who didn't get on here. But this one makes it. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you.